Hey folks, I'm Kathy Parker with Beyond the Ball Field. This is not your typical sports show. We won't be talking X's and O's, but we will be talking about raising your family in the sports-crazed world. Let's not only survive sports, but let's learn to thrive on and off the field. So please, join us as we look at life beyond the ball field. Welcome to Beyond the Ball Field. Today, I'd like to introduce you to Tammy Eunice. Tammy is a military wife. She is also the mother of three and has an amazing story, which involves her youngest son, James, who passed away at the age of 17. James was a dual sport athlete at Valdosta High School in Valdosta, Georgia. He certainly knew how to use his influence to impact others far beyond the ball field. Take a listen. Hi, Tammy. I'm so glad to have you a uh, part of Beyond the Ball Field today. And if you can please tell us your story of hope and encouragement and how it came from great unthinkable loss. Hey, Kathy. Um, well, you know, I lived a pretty, pretty charmed life. I'm the only child, married someone in the military. We traveled around and, and with, we had three kids. We have three amazing young young people that are making a difference in their world. And um, in 2008, John and I made the decision that we were going to retire. There was a job waiting for him at Moody Air Force Base as a civilian. And so we transitioned from Sumter, South Carolina, back to Moody Air Force Base in Valdosta, Georgia. And by that time, our older two kids were both in college because there's a pretty big age difference between the first two and then the younger one. Uh, Johnny is uh, eight and a half years older than James, and Lindsay is six years older than James. Uh, James was going into the 10th grade, and uh, the transition was hard. The transition was tough, but uh, James's love for the Lord shone through everything that he did. He was He was someone that was going to win people over um, and show them the love that that had been extended to him from the Lord. He just, he had this overflow that I've never seen in anyone. And, but he was an avid, he was, he, he loved sports, he loved being outside, and he loved hunting. And those were, those were three things that were big in his life. And, and everywhere he went, he considered it part of his mission field that I, I would suppose the best, the place that he loved the most, the place that he really felt the closest to God, um, was at Ocean Pond, which is a hunt, private hunting and fishing club in South Georgia. It's right on the Georgia, Florida line. And in, uh, he had, he had hunted, he had fished. He, it, well, it was Ocean Pond was the first place that he fished as a three-year-old. And by five, he was driving the boat down there while um, the the man that would take him fishing along with my daddy, um, by five, he was driving the boat and knew how to, he loved fishing. But probably when he was about 10, he started getting into hunting and um, he hunted quail and then he hunted deer. But in, in 2010, the end of 2010, beginning of 2011, he found a new passion, and it was it was duck hunting, and it was still at that same hunting and fishing club. It was with a different friend. It was somebody his age, and 
he had gone every he had gone every chance that he could get all during Christmas break and the new year dawned bright 2011 dawned bright a senior by then he was a senior at Valdosta High School he was uh, 17th in his class very smart young man, had gotten early acceptance to the University of Georgia, had already, because of uh, Coach Rick recruiting J. Roman Malcolm Mitchell, uh, had, um, and J. Roman Malcolm Mitchell ended up playing at the University of Georgia, but because he was recruiting them, he got the opportunity, his coach made available to him the opportunity to meet Coach Rick in December. All right, so and that's that's Coach Mark Rick. That was the coach for the University of Georgia. That is exactly right. And he, this is kind of a funny story that I just think I, I think we all need humor and heavy stories. And so James got called out of the class one day, and he goes bebopping into the uh, coach's office because he'd been called out, and James didn't know if it was for tutoring someone or he didn't know what it was about. But as he walked in he saw Coach Rick sitting there with Jay and Malcolm and Coach Gillespie, who was James's head football coach at Valdosta High School. And uh, James was excited to meet him, but also very mortified. He, he uh, called his dad when he got finished with school that day, and he said, Dad, you'll never believe who I met today. And, and uh, John said, James, I don't know, because you never knew what James was going to tell you. He always had a story. And <laughs> Uh, he said, well, I met, I just met Coach Rick, and then he paused for a minute, and he said, and I was wearing a University of Florida T-shirt. That's priceless. <laughs> so <he> That's met, <laughs> priceless. <laughs> and so so he met Coach Rick, uh, and, and Coach Gillespie was so generous. You know, look at the generosity of people throughout this entire story, but the generosity was that Coach Gillespie allowed James to meet him, he was hoping, James was hoping to walk onto the team. He had been a player his senior year, special teams, um, wide receiver, uh, all heart, 100% heart. And, and so that was, a big, that was a big moment for him. And the only reason he got to do that was because he had gotten the early acceptance to the University of Georgia. And it was the first thing he told Coach Gillespie is, I want to try to walk onto the team. But, you know, he kind of filed that away and focused on his hunting because, like I said, he loved hunting. And he was preparing for baseball because he was a two-sport athlete. Um, And so um, he had gone all during the beginning of January. Well, we were getting – we were hitting the Martin Luther King weekend, which um, that weekend was a – a holiday weekend for everybody. And so he had planned to go hunting Saturday morning, January 15th, Sunday morning before church, January 16th, and then before baseball practice on Monday. And so he left out about, he came into our room, um, walked into our room on the morning of January 15th, 2011. I don't want anybody to miss this, you know, and we had no idea that when he walked into our room and he walked out of our house that day, that that was the last time he was physically going to be in our home. It was a sobering, it's a sobering moment as I reflect on it now. But to me, the, the thing that I learned from that is making the most of every encounter. We both from the bed, 
told him we'd see him at lunch. He got his money to go get shotgun shells and um, and headed down to his favorite place, the place that he loved, Ocean Pond, with his best friend, Drew Pipkin. It was all, I mean, everything was above board. Everything was, um, they had permission. It was, you know, they weren't doing anything sneaky. And the way they hunted is one would be in the duck blind in the area that would they would be in the water. The water was 38 degrees. One would be with, with so they would have on waders. And one would be in the duck blind, and the other would drive around. And you have to understand, Ocean Pond is not just a little pond. It's a 500-acre pond. It's massive. So one would be in the duck blind. The other would flush the ducks. So the other would drive around in the boat and flush the ducks out and come back, park the boat. They'd both get out. They'd both then be in the water. And they would, you know, hunt the du- hunt the ducks. And so Drew had already taken his turn that morning. And it was James's turn. And James left. Uh, an interesting fact that I think is important, because I look, I don't see anything as a coincidence. The week before, Drew had dropped his phone in the water. So the new rule was whoever was in the boat had both cell phones. Oh, okay. So James not only had his phone... He had Drew's as well. So, you know, Drew sees James driving away in the boat, and he doesn't come back, and he doesn't come back, and he doesn't. And it's a massive lake, but it doesn't take that long when you're in a boat with a motor. And he said, you know, he told me, he said, I was kind of getting mad. I was like, James, where are you? This water is cold, and I'm ready for, I'm ready, you know, to get in the boat or let's go home or whatever. And so he's watching and watching. Now, you have to understand, um, he, he sees in the, in, the, in the brush, he can see a long distance away that he can't really make out what's going on, but the boat is spinning. And he's thinking that James is somehow playing around in the boat, doing wheelies or, or whatever, in the, in the boat, and, and he can't really tell, but as, as the boat comes out more and more and more, and it was still 500 yards, that's five football fields away, he could see the boat spinning, had been full of gas. They, they, they put gas in it that morning, and he could make out after a while that no one was in the boat. Mm. And he said, I pretty much lost my mind. I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, I knew probably nobody would worry about me until dark. He was 18 years old. James was 17. So he used what he could to get the attention. He yelled. He shot his gun until finally, I mean, it was like two hours, two hours of watching an empty boat, knowing your best friend was in that boat. And for two hours, he yelled and shot his gun until someone heard him behind the air. There's, there's housing back there, but it's a long way back, and it was a really cold day, so nobody was outside. So finally somebody pulled in, and our neighbor from our neighborhood, we lived 30 minutes from Ocean Pond, but he was going down there. He was also a member. He was going down to check his boat 
And he pulled in the same time these neighbors did, and they said, we think someone's in distress. And so our neighbor, Dean Blevins, called the game warden. And together, Dean and the game warden went out and they rescued Drew. And they pulled Drew out of the mud and the muck of what Drew said was like bungee cord underneath. That was that was the water that he was standing in. And it was it was dangerous for him to move because one move he would have gone under. Because it was just you've got you've got you've got shallow parts and then you've got one step is a deep part. So he couldn't really do a whole lot of movement. And like I said, the water was thirty eight degrees. Well they rescued Drew. Drew was hysterical. They allowed him to call. They gave him the phone to call his mom. They saw the boat. The boat was still spinning. Uh, but they didn't realize who, Dean did not realize who it was. He just knew that two had gone and one was coming back and the other was missing. And so we, um, J- Drew called his mom and then Kim made the hardest phone call she's ever made. She called me and she said, Tammy, I need you to come to Ocean Pond. James is missing. Hmm. What was that like, Tammy, to get that phone call? I mean, it had to have taken your breath away. You know, when she called and she said, Tammy, James is missing. You need to come to Ocean Pond. James is missing. My mom is in the car with me. Okay, we're across town. We've just left the mall to go to eat. You know, it's funny how when something like that happens to stop your world, you remember exactly where you were. Mm-hmm. And I had just pulled into Atlanta Bread Company, and we were going to get something to eat. And and I said, when she said that to me, because when, when, when she called me, I just thought she was calling to tell me that they had gotten, they had killed some duck and, ducks and come see and, um, I, I didn't know because Kim and I weren't friends that talked all the time. So it was really kind of unusual for her to be calling me. So my first thing to her back was, what do you mean he's missing? My mom immediately started praying out loud. Mm-hmm. My mommy, my mom was so terrified of water. She was terrified of guns. She, she had this fear of... You know, and James wasn't scared of anything, you know, and it wasn't, he was a careful hunter. He was a strong swimmer. Those were not, those were not parts of the story that are the, the parts that we, we can't, well, those, those are parts that, that were all necessary parts that he was a good hunter. He did know how to swim. This is bigger. This is bigger than that. And so. I kept my composure. It's remarkable. I never keep my composure. (laughs) I know before I answered the phone, before I had even asked God to come, he was there. Yes. He was there before I answered the phone. He gave me a supernatural peace. I was not hysterical. I was not crying. You know, I was not because, because of the way Kim worded it. Let me tell you, words are so important. The way you word things, and I believe God went before, I know the Lord went before Kim as well, because to hear the words missing is very different than hearing the words he's missing in the water. Yeah. And we fear that he's drowned. I didn't hear, no, I did not hear that word one time while we were down at Ocean Park, even though we knew the reality. 
So I made from there, I made the two hardest phone calls I've ever made. I called my dad. He was at home. Right around, we were right around the corner. That's why I called him first, because we were heading his way. And I said, Daddy, I need you. Please don't ask me any questions. But we, I need to pick you up, and you need to take me down to Ocean Pond. James is missing. And so we get, I get to the house, and before I get there, I call John. John is just incredible. John was in James's room cleaning out his closet, getting rid of things that he was going to no longer use because he was getting ready to go to college, things like toy trucks and stuff like that. Mm. All that stuff was on his bed, gathered and placed on his bed. And so he met me. John and I met. We both met at the entrance of Ocean Pond. And I jumped out of uh, the car with my mom and daddy because I was in my car and jumped in the car, jumped in the truck with John. And we made that first trip down that gravel road to that clubhouse to a, I mean, it was brimming with people. There were, I mean, I remember pulling in down there and I'm like, what is happening? Why are there so many, why are there so many police cars? Why is there an ambulance? Why is there a fire truck? What is going on? He's just missing. Mm. And so that moment is frozen in my mind as there were already those running to the scene to help already from the beginning. And, you know, word travels very fast and it took no time at all for social media to pick it up. And, uh, and our daughter, this is, this is something I learned is you always tell your family as soon as something happens because of social media today, Lindsay found out we were waiting to tell our kids because we're not alarmist and we don't want to worry them unnecessarily. Lindsay lived in Washington, D.C., and Johnny was in law school at in Athens, Georgia, at the University of Georgia. We were trying to keep them um from knowing until we knew something. You were like but thinking Lindsay, what a mama would think. You know, I don't want to worry them if, if there's no reason to worry them. Well, I knew that I was going to be dealing with a lot with Lindsay. Let, let me tell you, Lindsay is the biggest help, but Lindsay is, I mean, she's, she's going to be a force to be reckoned with when she has information and, because she wants to help, you know. But she found out through Facebook. She found out through a message on Facebook that somebody said, hey, what happened to your brother? And she said, my brother, James, he said, go look at his wall. And so when she went and looked, she saw all these things and then she couldn't get a hold of us. But but let me back up to the moment we got out of the car, the moment we got out of the car at Ocean Pond. And I, I couldn't, I couldn't see anybody I recognized except for Drew's sister, who was hysterical. And again, in my mind, what is happening? He's just missing. We are all over. Y'all are all overreacting to this. I still have not shed one tear at this point. And she kept turning around looking at me. And every time she'd turn around and look at me, she'd break down again. And finally, after about what it seemed an eternity, but it was only probably a minute, Kim Newburn, which was Drew's mom, walked over, and my first question to her, because I knew two had gone, and there were only two out there, and one knew the story. Only one knew the story. 
And so only one was there that could tell the story. So I said, and this, I didn't know anything. I said, Kim, can I please speak to Drew? And without hesitation, she said, of course you can. So we made our way to the bank of that massive pond. And as we made our way to the bank of, of Ocean Pond, where Drew was sitting in a waiting Jeep, law enforcement everywhere, we look up and we see our neighbor. And, and Dean knows we're not members at Ocean Pond, but Drew's family was. And Dean looks at John and he said, John, are these your people? He said, Dean, it's James. And Dean grabbed his chest, and I saw Dean grab his chest and say, oh, my God, not James. But I was making my way to Drew, and Dean turned and showed John the boat that was still spinning in the middle of the pond that James had been in. And I make my way down to Drew, and Drew gets out of the car, and Drew is gray, and Drew is sobbing, and Drew is devastated, broken, a broken young man. And he gets out of the car and he's apologizing, Miss Tammy, I'm so sorry. This is all my fault. And I said, you know, the only way I can explain this is God went before us. And I looked at him and I said, Drew, I don't know what happened out here today. But I know whatever happened was not your fault. Now, I want to tell you how important those words were for Drew at that time. And I continued to tell Drew that, even as more of the story unfolded and we learned more. Um, those words, you know, I learned during this time that things that I learned were for me, but they weren't just for me. Now, that day, those words were to bring comfort to Drew, to show that he bore no responsibility for this, that this was bigger than him. This was a bigger story that he was chosen to be a part of the story, bearing no responsibility to the outcome. But as time went on and we learned more about the story, which we will never really know. Well, here's, here's what I know. James had an appointment that day he wasn't going to miss. Mm. And that appointment was a divine appointment. The Lord designed January 15, 2011, at a place James loved above any other place with a friend he adored. He chose that place to call James home. James stepped into eternity that day. Now, from the physical part of it, what it looks like happened was as he was flushing the ducks, it was starting to warm up. It was about noon. And when he pulled away from Drew, Drew had clarity about what James had on. James had on heavy sweatpants and a sweatshirt because it was cold, and then he had waders on over that. And on that, he, on top of that, he had on a ski hat, and he had on camouflage mask. Mm-hmm. And the camouflage mask was found in the bottom of the boat. The ski mask was found on—I mean, the ski, the, the ski hat was found on top of the water— about day four. But we think what happened was when he pulled off that camouflage mask that was in the bottom of the boat, the ski hat blew off and he leaned to grab it. And the reason why we think he leaned is because the seat back was broken. 
in the, the seat. seat back was not broken. Mm-hmm. The seat back was broken in the boat. Mm-hmm. And when the seat back broke, it was so abrupt that it flipped him out of the boat with his gun, which was my dad's gun. His he was wearing his waders and both cell phones that he had on him. Mm-hmm. All of that went into the water. So that, you know, I think people want us to make more from that story, more from that part of the story than there is to make of it. But it's as simple as when it is your day, God's calling you home wherever you are. It just so happened that it was, yes. How hard was that? You said God went before you, and I can imagine as a mom, how hard was it? not to get angry or to give blame or guilt. How hard was it? I mean, it sounds like you dealt with it right there, right then. The blaming, you know what? Honest to goodness, um, there was there was there were there were clear lessons the Lord taught me along that journey. I didn't blame Drew, you know, and and I'll tell you, in marriage sometimes when a tragedy happens to a child I've seen this. One parent blames the other for what happened. And, man, that causes a crack and a foundation, and you get a crack and a foundation of anything, the foundation of a house, the foundation of a tooth, the foundation of anything. That is going to cause it to crumble over time. And and one morning, God had just been really speaking to me. And we stayed right across the street. We didn't live in Lake Park. People were so generous and gave us their homes to use. And one morning as we were driving down that gravel road, and it was early in the search. See, it was a 17-day search for James. But this was day three or four of the search, driving down that gravel road. I turned to John. And I, listen, anybody that knows me knows that I am not this super wise person. I usually shoot from the hip. I have to apologize a lot um, because I shoot my mouth off too much. But one thing God gave me was that guard over my mouth during that time. Um, So I turned to John and I said, let's nail this down right now. We both said he could go duck hunting because I knew, and and I don't know that I knew clearly then But what I've learned now is that if we had started blaming, if I'd said, John, you let him go duck hunting, and I did. Now, let me tell you, that could have been, it could have been part of the story. If if James had not done his homework, if he, if there was something hanging over his head, um, that, you know, God, God cleared all that. Yes. We didn't have one ill word. Nothing prevented him from going hunting that day. Because because I know that if I had blamed John, that would have started breaking John down, and it would have started breaking our communication down. And, you know, as time went on down at Ocean Pond, if I had blamed Drew, every time I looked at Drew, I pictured what it would look like if James was the one here. Let me tell you, nothing will get you your mind straighter than picturing your child in that situation. And what kind of grace do you want extended to your child? 
Wow. So I flipped roles, and I thought, how would I want Drew's family treating James if he was here? And I kept telling Drew, I said, Drew, you were chosen to be a part of this story. This is, this is going to be part of your story as well. And of all the people that the Lord could have chosen to be with James, to be the last person James was with, he chose you. I mean, that says something really special about you. And it allowed for the noise that Drew was hearing from the community. Not all of the community understand. But, you know, there's always that small voice, and that small voice sometimes is the loudest. Yeah. Of somebody blaming Drew that he could have done more, that there was more that that he should have done. There was nothing else Drew could have done. Two people would have lost their lives that day. If both had been in the boat... James and Drew had a friendship like, like David and Jonathan from, mm. from Scripture, that if one of them had gone in the water, the other would have died saving that, that one. And, and so the Lord kept Drew to a part of the story, but moved him away from it so that he wasn't part of any of the, the, the death of James. Right. You know, when James was recovered— 17 days. Okay. The, the massiveness of that story, you know, we focus so much on James's life that sometimes I forget the massiveness of the story. 5,000 meals, Kathy, were served down at Ocean Pond over that 17 days. There were 35 agencies from three states that stepped up. They heeded the call and they showed up and they searched for a young man they had never heard of before. Wow. How does God use ordinary? He used it in the life of James. And and let me tell you, there were law enforcement men and women that left change for eternity because they had witnessed, they had heard the story of a young man so willing to live and die for Jesus mm-hmm. that they said, I want that. Wow. Because during that 17-day search, those stories started coming out on people whose lives had been touched by James. They started showing up and telling those stories, which is, is something that you and your husband spend your time going around and telling these stories is in school after school and, and dif- with different young people that you get to share that with on how important it is on how you live your life. And with him, uh, your son, he had only 17 years, but he made an impact in those 17 years. His impact, I said, most people that live 80 years don't pack as much into what James did in 17 and a half. James lived intentionally. He lived grounded in his faith. I mean, I can't tell you the teachers that weren't necessarily big believers in James <laughs> that knew that James was a big believer in Jesus. Uh, I had one teacher tell me that she taught the hardest class that he took it was like a philosophy class. It was theory of knowledge for people that are, are um, that that know anything about the International Baccalaureate Service, and it was about answering questions, hard questions, deep questions, questions that have no answers. And she said on more than one occasion when I would ask the question, what is the answer to a question that has no answers? 
She said the class would puzzle and 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 moan and and muse over it. And she said more than once, James sat bolt upright in his desk and said Jesus. And she in, ended it with indeed. Wow. James was not afraid in a public school setting to to give the hope that he had. He was so secure in what the Lord had done in his life that he just, that's what he did. He, he spent his life, his ministry to Valdosta High School was to go in day in, day out and find the broken because he himself had been broken and he knew that. And so he spent his time showcasing his brokenness as a way to showcase what the Lord does with broken people. And it it was interesting. People that didn't necessarily buy it while he was here, they bought into it wholeheartedly when he went missing. 17 days, people say, how did you stand that? I said, we weren't ready on day 16. God had not shown us everything that we were going to need to begin. We were just beginning the journey. We thought our journey was going to be finished when he was recovered. How foolish of us to see this as anything other than the divine hand of God. And he gave 17 years old, 17 days in the water, 17th in his class. And Tammy, I have heard you say um, many times that, um, especially when people say that God won't give you more than you can handle, you're quick to say, oh, wait a minute. (laughs) This story was too hard. This was too hard for us. Tell a little bit about that and about how you believe that what matters is how you handle things that happen, because you don't have control over what does happen to you, but how you handle it and some examples of that. Right. And, you know, people or people want to tell you to be strong. And I will tell you, you don't have to be strong when the when the Lord is with you. The Lord is your strength. And he was my strength then. And he's been my strength along this journey. He is my strength now. And I will tell you, I will promise you as a follower of Jesus Christ, you will encounter a story that is too big. Because honestly, Kathy, if we could, if it was. If, if we could handle it, if the story was big, big enough for us to handle on our own, we would we we would take the credit. We would take we would take the applause for it. But he gives us something that's too big for us so that we can showcase him. And, you know, I am a firm believer. And man, one of the clearest lessons is that you don't get to choose what happens to you. We did not. We would have never cast ourselves in this role. You don't get to choose what happens to you. But I can promise you 100% of the time, 100% of the time, you get to choose your response. You get to choose life or death. And I will tell you, there uh, there was a story that, that made it very clear in my mind. I didn't realize how I was going to need this story. Because I don't like hard, I don't like hard lessons. I'm a wimp. But day two of the search, I had two, I had two encounters. I had two moms that had lost children. 
that shaped which road I could choose. The first one walked in um, on, on day two of the search, and she walked over as soon as she got into the Ocean Pond House. This is somebody um, who we knew, but we had not seen in years. And we knew she had lost a son. And she, we knew she had lost a son in a suddenly. But you have to understand, it had not even been 24 hours since James was missing. There was still hope for us. We never really lost hope, even though I knew very early that we weren't going to get what we wanted. John never lost hope that in a Lazarus resurrection. But this lady walks into the house, almost gleeful, um, almost energized. As she walked over to John and she made her way over to John and she grabbed his hand and she looked at him and she said, you will never get over this. And I thought, I remember looking at her and it had only been 24 hours and she had lost her son in 1995. So then it had been 16 years. And I remember looking at her thinking, I will never be that person. I will. I mean, you, you know what? You can say, I'll never do this and never. You know what? When the Lord is in it, you can't. I won't be. I won't do that. I will not surrender to the hurt and the pain and the grief and stay there. No matter how it turns out. Same day, a lady that had lost her son in 2003 to cancer. Her, her son was one of the football coaches for Valdosta, the reason James played football for Valdosta his senior year. And she walked into the Ocean Pond house that day, on the same day that the other lady had come in. But she, what she brought was hope. Yes. I saw it in her face. I saw it in her eyes. She showed me that there can be purpose birthed from tragedy. Yes. That there can be more. And so from that moment, I chose to walk that road of hope, not that road of hopelessness. And Tammy, what is that? What does that purpose look like? You guys have done some amazing things with the James Eunice Foundation. What does that hope look like? Well, what we've been able to do is, um, uh, you know, our heart, is and so much like we go into schools, I get the opportunity to step into the lives of young people. In fact, I wish I had time to read you one of the essays from one of the young people this year that um, that wrote. He's a senior, but the first time he met me, he was a sixth grader, and he wrote about the impact that meeting me in the sixth grade and hearing Jane, not meeting me, it moved me out of the equation. I'm, I'm, only, I'm only the vessel right. that God is using. But meeting me in the sixth grade and hearing the story of James shaped who he became and how he makes his decisions now. Wow. And so if I did nothing, honest to goodness, if John and I did nothing but that for the rest of our lives— that would be that would be enough for me, but God has given us more. He's given us more. We've stepped into churches. We've stepped into civic organizations. We've spoken to boys and girls clubs. We have spoken to uh, all kinds of groups in schools um, about legacy. Um, and but God, the the family of Drew uh, came up with this idea because. Um, 
when everything happened with James, when he fell out of the boat, it was eight hours. The water was 38 degrees. Lowndes County had dry, had wetsuits. They had wetsuits, did not, did not protect them in the cold water. So it was eight hours before a search could begin in the water for our boy. And the father, the stepfather of the young man that James was hunting with, um, said, I have an idea. This is a beautiful thing about our ministry, because nothing has been our idea, including losing James. That was certainly not our idea. But, but he came and he said, I want to I raise money. I want this to be a community-led thing. He said, I wanna, my, my goal is to raise, you know, this was little bits and pieces along the way. I want to raise $90,000. I want to suit our men and women that are a part of the dive team, which is, is voluntary, by the way, uh, I want to suit them up, and so we're going to go into the community after after James is recovered, after all of this has taken place, or after James is found. He didn't use the word recovered. That was another word that wasn't used. Uh, after James is found, and we're going to use this as an opportunity to do something for the sheriff's department that will help them. And so, so we began uh, the James Eunice Dive Fund. And this was after James's um, celebration of life service, also known as a funeral. I don't like that word either. There are a lot of words I don't like, mm-hmm. so I don't use. Uh, but his celebration of life service, uh, we began hitting the pavement with, this has never been a John and Tammy thing. That's the, that's the beauty of this story. This has always been community-led. And so we had a great community a great team of people that went out and instead of raising $90,000 in 90 days, we raised $149,000 and all of that money passed through our hands into James's foundation and went back in the form of a check to the Lowndes County Sheriff's department for them to be equipped with not only dry suits, but a sonar for sound, a $25,000 piece of equipment, boats, uh, ramps, uh, trailers, uh, so much, so much that they were one of the best equipped teams in the state after Mm -hmm. it was all said and done. And every bit of it had a cross in 23. 23 was James's football number. It had a cross in 23 and it had diving for James. And I can't tell you the men and women and the sheriff, at the time, Sheriff Prine, initially when they would go and do a search and a recovery for someone, Sheriff Prine would call us and tell us that Lowndes County was called and they went. And the the sheriff from the other county would say, what do we owe you? And Sheriff Prine said, I would always say, you don't owe us a thing. It was paid in full by number 23, James Eunice. Mm. What is the dollar and, figure, Tammy, that y'all have raised and given back to surrounding communities? We have given back since 2011 over $500,000. Mm. We're in the middle of scholarship season now. And we have given over, I don't want to give you the exact number because I'm not sure. We have given since 2011. We started with six in 2011. That all came from the sale of the Clock is Ticking t-shirts that we'll talk about in a little bit. But um, we, the money raised 
has has been able to get we've been able to give over 500 scholarships to 500 500 scholarships to graduating seniors in high school that are stepping into college it's something they get to carry with them james didn't get to step onto the campus of the university of georgia and be a bulldog like he wanted to be but these kids carry his name with them they carry his legacy with them and that's a beautiful thing so it's finding purpose because you know what it's always going to be painful that's that's a reality but what am i going to do with the pain am i going to sit and just 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 let it pour over me and just feel sorry for myself or am i going to use it to make a difference Wow, Tammy, you're such a great example of that, you and John, your whole family, and and our community. So such a great example of that. Now, you were talking about the University of Georgia, and I love that story about James having on a Florida Gator T-shirt when he met Coach Mark Rick at the time. But um, what happened with um, James, um, of course, passing away before uh, he graduated, but his hope of being a walk-on for the University of Georgia. This is just such a cool story. Oh, man, and, and let me let me tell you, like, the whole—I'll try to get the whole—I won't spend too much time on this, but let me tell you how the whole thing played out. So um, his, his, uh, his celebration of life service was held in February, and so at his, at his service— uh, Pastor David called up. Well, the first the first thing his service his his football players. I was really stressing over who would be pallbearers at his service, and a friend of mine that works at the funeral home, Tommy Johnson, said, "Tammy, he said, let the football let the football coaches be the pallbearers and let the football players be the honorary, and that way you're not hurting anybody." And so his football coaches and his baseball coaches were the the pallbearers. But at the service, uh, and we were unaware of this, uh, Pastor David called Jay and Malcolm, Jay Rome, Malcolm Mitchell, the two stars that both played at Georgia. Malcolm went on to play for the Patriots, called them up to the stage. They were still seniors in high school at the time. And they carried a box, and just a cardboard box. And inside the box was a handwritten letter and a jersey. And as they pulled the jersey out of the box and held it up, it was a red and black University of Georgia jersey with a number 23 and Eunice on the back. And the letter said, I'm sure this is the jersey James would have earned. By the way, he made the team. And let me tell you what Coach Rick did. Coach Rick, who had there was nothing for him to gain from doing this. He did this out of the the Holy Spirit living inside of him. But he put James on. He listed James on the roster with the other players each year. He listed him as a freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, as twenty three from Valdosta, Georgia. He listed him on the roster, and in 2015, when they had the senior banquet, we get a letter in the mail, and he said, we want to honor James at the senior banquet, the senior gala, a field James never walked on with a uniform on. He said, we want to honor him. So after honoring all the seniors that had worked 
blood, sweat, and tears those four years. Coach Rick said, let's dim the lights. And he said, and one was missing. And they did a little video tribute, just like they had done for the other players. Mm. They did a video tribute to James. And then they called us up to the stage to receive all the same accolades that those players received. You see, James knew, James knew, listen, Kathy, he knew he was going to make that team. He knew it. He told me, he said, because I told him, listen, I, I believe in being very humble with my kids. And James, that's a long shot. It is a long shot for you to make the team. I'm just being, I'm just being real with you when I'm talking to you today that I, I did not see how that was ever going to happen because he wasn't as big as some of the other players. But you see what? When God was in him, he was bigger than the rest of them. Yes. He was bigger than the other players because his story, his story, his legacy, not how well he played, but how he lived. And and that's what Coach Rick, Coach Rick did interviews about this uh, because we made a big deal out of it. Not because he made a big, not because Coach Rick made a big deal out of it. We made a big deal out of it. And it was a big deal. It is still such an amazing story oh, of what is. he did, like you said, for an ordinary family. And he did something yes. that was just uh, such heartwarming and and of what what is valuable. Right. What what really matters. Yes. What really matters. And, you know, and we always oh, sent us for the first game, the, the first game that they played, and I played. I think they played Missouri, I think. Um, he sent us tickets. Now, this was, this was insane. This, so this was in 2011. Sent us tickets. And he said, I'm sending 10, 10 tickets. I want you to have my box. Wow. His box mm. for the game. Mm. So we, we sat in his box at the, at the stadium. And for and watched that game, and they lost. And that evening afterwards, they wanted to let us do a tour of the Butts Mayor Building. And you know, we didn't think we were going to run into Coach Rick, and it was just honestly that was another God ordained moment. We ran into him in the hall where he had lost a ball game. You know how coaches feel after they've lost a ball game. Uh, they, just just a little their, little idea of how that feels. Yeah, yeah I bet you. Do. Yeah, I bet you do. Let me tell you. His face lit up when he when he met us. That was his first time meeting us. That was his first time ever laying eyes on us. And he took time with us. Wow. That's just so much more than wins and losses. It's, it really speaks of the kind of person that he is. And so we will always remember. Instead of saying, I'll never forget, I choose to say, I will always remember. Yes. I will always remember what was done because if i forget then i will lose the i will i will lose the spark you know god god ordained all of it it is it is incredible it really is well tammy you know, james wrote a, Oh, okay, go ahead. That, well, that's what I was about to ask you about the poem, because this poem, I'm amazed every time I read it, every time I see it, um, and to think that he was um, not quite 17 years old when he wrote this and how profound it is. 
Can you uh, share about the clock is ticking and how that came about and then read it for us? I will be so happy to. Um, in April, uh, April 16th of 2010, James was a junior. Um, a young man that had been the equipment manager of the baseball team the year before. He was a year ahead of James in school, and James, James and Joseph were friends, uh, but they weren't close friends. But he was um, Joseph was the equipment manager that year, James's junior year. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The year before, when James was a sophomore, Joseph was a junior. Um, Joseph was a part of the the baseball team doing the equipment and everything. Well, the next year when Joseph was a senior and James was a junior, Joseph wasn't doing that anymore. James didn't see him as much. But on April the 16th of 2010, Joseph Garcia Campbell was killed in a car wreck in Douglas, Georgia. And it was a devastating, it was a devastating loss for James uh, because James felt like the opportunities that he had had to invest in Joseph, that he had not fully taken advantage of those opportunities and that, that he had somehow not shared with him enough of the hope, not that, you know, not saying anything about Joseph. This is all, this is all how James felt in his heart, that he had not made a big enough impact in the life of Joseph. And that all of a sudden, Joseph was gone. And so that happened on April 16th. And on on April 18th, the Sunday afternoon, James sat down at his computer. And he penned the words to the clock is t- ticking. And he posted them at 2.21 p.m. on April the 18th. But here are the words that James wrote to the clock is ticking. Take time to love someone today, tomorrow, for the rest of your life. Because when that unexpected day comes that they pass on, you'll be left wondering what you could have done better. How you could have made them feel more welcome and show them that you do care for them. Don't wait until it's too late like I did. Show the love that Jesus has for you to everyone you see. Let your heart break for what breaks his. Christ is enough. Let him show you life. You never know who he may touch through you. It is so sad that it takes a tragedy like this to comprehend how our days are numbered. Only he knows. Keep your faith in him. He will bless you beyond belief. Our job is right now, this very second. So often God gives me a little nudge towards someone and I put it off until the next day and then the next and the next. Stop stalling. God put us on this earth for his glory and not ours. And so many times the things I do always point back to me and my stupid self-righteousness. So do something with me, everyone. If this just touches one person, I will have done my job. Don't stall. Judgment is a heartbeat away. Now, I didn't realize that, well, he, so he calls me to the back, because I think this is an important part of the story. Calls me to the back of the house to read it, because it always mattered to him what I thought. And I can't say that I was always as, as uh, encouraging as I should have been. I had no idea at the time why he wrote it. He called me to the back of the house to read it. And I read it, and I said, James, that's real good. 
Now, don't you have some homework you need to do? <laughs> but his friend from South Carolina, his friend from South Carolina said, "Are these, he asked him two questions. Are these lyrics or are they your words of wisdom? And within the minute at 2.25 p.m., four minutes after he had written it, James responded with God's words that he spoke to me. Wow. You can't get around it. No. You cannot get around it. And three days shy of nine months, takes nine months from conception to the birth of a baby. Those words were conceived when Joseph died. Those words were birthed and took on life when James died. Three days shy of nine months, God called James home. And Tammy, what, I mean, like you said, there is no denying that God gave him those words. Like he said, he admitted, you know, God gave me those words. But Mm -hmm. how profound is that? That you don't usually see things written like that from a not even 17-year-old. Thank you, Tammy. Thank you for taking the time and and sharing this with us because it is a powerful story. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you for, for allowing me to. Thank you for joining us on Beyond the Ball Field, where we are using lessons learned in sports to positively impact our family and others. And for more information of how you can be a positive influence beyond the ball field, go to our website, beyondtheballfield.com.